fire protection engineers, they are doing a great job when nobody is talking about them. You know, it's only when there's a like the Grenfell uh, Tower fire in in England. Why were there not more exits? What, what was the sprinkler system yeah. like? That's when you know they come under fire. No pun intended, but. Um, <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by Riley McManus. Uh, and Riley's a little bit different from my typical guest because he's not a lawyer, he's not in claims, he's an engineer, uh, and he's a risk management professional for an insurance company. Um, so what he kind of does is he goes into either insurance or potential insurance businesses and assesses the risk um, when they're either renewing their policy or you know, going to get a new policy. So I thought it'd be really interesting to have him come on and talk about what it is that he looks for and how he helps um, businesses, you know, mitigate their future risks. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Riley. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to have you on because you're a little bit different than my standard guests. And you and I have talked about this a few times because you're an engineer by trade. Um, So I love having you on to talk about, you know, the risk that you see with insurance or potential insurance for, for your company. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, um, it is interesting to hear that I'm an engineer by trade. Cause I know, um, that is what I, what I studied in school it was actually uh, civil engineering, but I always mm-hmm. tell people, I, I think I would be a horrible civil engineer. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, it was kind of one of those majors that I lost interest in about halfway through and kind of fell into, um, a different major in fire protection engineering and yeah. took some some classes there. So I'm sure we'll kind of dive into that stuff, but it was just interesting to hear that. Yeah. Well, that's actually a perfect segue because I did want to get into your, your background. So, you know, so as you said, you went to school for civil engineering. So what, like, what was your decision process going in? So as a way of background, I have a lot of lawyers on this podcast and we talk a lot about like how they became lawyers. Some had parents who were lawyers, some like had no lawyer in their family. And the same thing when I have people on from claims, they're like, oh, I came from a long lines of claims, you know, people working insurance and claims. Other people like, I just fell into it. So I'm always interested to see how anyone ended up in their career. Um, but starting out, like when you went to college, like were your parents engineers or did you just feel like I'm good at math? This is a good career path for me. It's a good major. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's it's more of the latter. Um, when I was in high school, even middle school, but, but high school is when I started to kind of take things uh, more seriously. I found that I not only enjoyed math, but it was one of my strong suits. Um, I excelled in that area more than I did in other subjects. And once I started realizing, wow, I'm almost I'm almost 18 and going to be going to college. Uh, I need to start figuring out what I want to do with my life. So I kind of went to some of my teachers that I had um, a good relationship with and asked them, you know, where does someone like me usually go in terms of careers and college majors and all that? And I was pretty consistently pushed to engineering. And I think a lot of that just has to do with how I interacted with them in class. Um, Mm -hmm. If they, you know, said, this is just a, this is a universal law of math. I would kind of question that, go, why? I want to understand. If you're going to tell me that I have to accept that, I want to understand it. So they kind of saw my interactions with them and said, you're probably going to be going engineering. So <laughs> I went in with, as an undecided engineering major, cause I didn't, I didn't even really know what engineering was. I just mm-hmm. knew, okay, it must be kind of math-based um, and involve kind of solving problems. 
Uh, so I went in undecided, took some intro classes and talked to a lot of people at my school and decided that civil would be the route to go because it was so broad. And mm-hmm. I felt that I wanted to keep a lot of doors open um, so that I could continue to learn and then hopefully eventually find an area that I uh, felt comfortable with and wanted to pursue a career in. So it, it, well, it's funny because I'm a, actually a math major um, and I'm a lawyer now. So that's like a weird transition. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> that us. is interesting. <laughs> But I'm, I'm always, and my school didn't have engineering and I look back and think like, oh, engineering probably would have been a really good path for me, but I just didn't, I was a science, I was a science path at the time. Um, so, you know, you had mentioned earlier though, you, you started in civil engineering, then you kind of like fell out of love with it. So what happened there? Yeah. So this kind of, um, coincided with another strange, um, path of events that happened, which is when I applied to colleges um, using the common application that uh, is used in high school, there was a box when I was applying to WPI. And side note, I applied to WPI because I had family members that had gone there, majored in engineering, and I visited with them and just really loved the community feel. But as I was applying to WPI through the common app, there was a question that said, would you like to be considered for the five-year master's program in fire protection engineering. And it was a yes or no question, which I just saw that as there's no risk. Why why would I choose no? So I hit yes and I moved on and I had totally forgotten that I did that. And um, when I was about two weeks out from going to, to school for my freshman year, I got a letter in the mail that said, congratulations, you've been accepted into the master's program for fire protection engineering. And I was like, okay. Um, that's strange. I, I don't even understand where this letter is coming from. Cause again, I had forgotten that I clicked that box. Um, but I said, okay, I'm, I guess I got accepted. So I might as well check it out. And so I met some people at school who were involved in that program and they mentioned an introductory class in fire protection engineering. So I said, I might as well take it. Um, and I took that, I believe my sophomore year and it was a really fun class. Um, mm-hmm. You got to light a bunch of stuff on fire, see how <laughs> compartments burn. Um, and I was like, this is this is really cool. So while that's happening, I'm also losing interest in my civil engineering classes. Well, of course. Um, you, so you, it's like fire it versus kind of, paper. <laughs> exa- exactly. Yeah. So it was it was the uh, the perfect the perfect storm that led me to say, um, you know, I'm probably going to start pursuing something in fire protection engineering as opposed to civil. Um, and while I didn't finish my master's in fire protection engineering, I was able to take a few courses, um, and then do both of my capstone projects in fire protection engineering. So that's what kind of loosely led to me being involved in a career that has to do with fire protection. Um, so from there, I started, uh, looking at internships and one of the guest instructors that came to the, uh, introductory fire protection engineering course, he worked at NFPA, which is the National Fire Protection Association. And he said, you should, you should come on, come and uh, interview and, and check it out. Um, it's a really great organization. It, they basically are the company that uh, produces the codes that um, a lot of buildings need to abide by to get their certificates of occupancy. Um, and I met a lot of great people there that had come from so many different areas of fire protection so it was kind of the, the perfect starting internship. And generally speaking, there's kind of two routes that fire protection engineers go um, from WPI. And the one that I was most interested in was consulting, 
-hmm. where you'd kind of go out and you would be helping um, owners design sprinkler systems for the types of occupancies that they're looking to construct. And um, that was kind of the route I thought I was going to go. But I had made um, a really good connection with one of the employees at NFPA who said, um, you should also check out insurance. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I kind of, in the back of my head, I was like, "Uh, insurance sounds pretty boring. Um, And I even say that to people now, if you told me while I was in college that I'd be working in insurance uh, and let alone enjoying it, I would have laughed. Um, Because I just, I picture insurance policies and say, this is this is extremely boring. I would never want to work in insurance. But sure enough, I, I said, all right, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He seems to know me pretty well and understand what I want out of my career and out of my life. Let's give it a shot. So I did another uh, internship with a large property and casualty shared, not the one that I'm uh, currently working for, but a different one. And I just immediately kind of fell in love with the job. You're, you're in the field, you're going to manufacturing plants, you're kind of learning how odd things are made Mm -hmm. and trying to determine, uh, you know, based on the equipment here and the processes that they're following, what is the most likely fire or explosion scenario? And if that happens, what is going to happen to the building? Is there a sprinkler system that's adequately designed? Are we going to lose the entire building, half the building, 5% of the building? I kind of just loved it. And from there, I I never looked back. So I I apologize for the long-winded answer, but that's that's how I kind of uh, fell into the insurance industry like, like a lot of other people do. No, and I no, because I love it because I, I a lot of themes we see on this podcast is people ending up in the insurance industry, you know, by accident or by, you know, an odd path, like not an odd path, but like it's not always a straight shot, you know, and I love hearing everyone's stories, how they, they got where they are and the different things they do now that they're in the insurance industry, um, because it is so multifaceted, like it is not just you know, claims. It's not just underwriting. Like there's so much going on. And that's what I really like to highlight here too, is that the, like, there's something for everybody. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, 100%. So, you know, let's, I want to fast forward a little bit. um, Well, so in your role now, are you, at your, and I don't know, if, I don't remember if we're allowed to say your current company or not. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I work for Selective Insurance. Okay. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't remember what, what, what was allowed. So now at, at Selective, are you just assessing, it, so your role is to assess the risk of insurance and potential insurance, correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Is it just fire risk or uh, multi-risk? No, so it's it's um it's multiple risks. It's okay. uh, pretty much all lines of business. Um, <clears throat> when I came to this company, my my background was only in property. Um, so loss prevention engineering for, for property risks. So I was looking at fire and flood and that type of stuff. But when I came here, I uh, had to kind of learn these other lines of business, workers' compensation, general liability, um, auto. So it's it's been definitely a learning curve. Um, sure. And there's similar concepts that can be applied. Um, but yeah, but my background was only in property prior to here. Okay. So before we jump into what you do at a selective, I wanted to make sure we touched on, on the fire risk because I work on a lot of uh, cases that involve, you know, fires in homes or buildings. And I find them to be the most fascinating types of cases because you go in, you have, I don't know, a slew of a bunch of attorneys, a ton of experts, fire experts, everyone representing a different product and trying to figure out what product could have caused or contributed to the fire. I find it absolutely fascinating. Because just the, the amount of 
detail that goes into examining a scene to try to figure out what was the cause. It's, I don't, I, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I love the process. It's usually multi-days, you know, you get to know everybody there. Um, so I can understand why you, you know, why this was something that, you know, struck your interest in, in college and, and after, because it's, I, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And um, one of the things that I found so fascinating very early on is um, there's still so much we don't know about fire, um, just yeah. down to the molecular level, like the, the reactions that are happening in a flame, which personally, I, once it gets that detailed, I, I kind of lose interest a little bit. Um, I'm kind of a top-down processor. Surface level, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like to understand the big picture of what's happening, but um, but yeah, diving into some of that chemistry and and what actually happens based on how much oxygen availability there is and so many other factors, uh, it, definitely really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've just I I've been at so many scenes that it's like, okay, this part of the living room caught on fire. And pulling everything apart and try, like finding like the one little, you know, connector, you know, the outlet cord that's frayed. Like, okay, we know this, the, you know, the spark happened here, and this is what ignited the fire. It's I, I don't know. I can never do it enough. <laughs> <I think> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a fun process. Very difficult though. I give I give uh, fire investigators a lot of credit. Um, we did one small project in in that introductory um, class that I was referring to, where we had to just look at pictures from a fire scene and determine where the fire mm -hmm. originated. And it, it was not easy. Um, so a lot of clues, but to really come down to a decisive answer and say, this is where it started. And here's how I know, uh, not very easy. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've found is it's also a very small community. It seems that every like, at least by region, like when you go to one of these inspections, everybody knows, everybody. And if you're like the last defendant to get notification of it, you might not it, like, you're going to be scrambling to find an expert because they're <laughs> already retained. They're already there. Yeah. So I think maybe you need to get out there and start promoting, you know, fire protection <laughs> as, as a more of a, a career path. Cause I think there's a need for more individuals to, to do this. Yeah, there definitely is. I think one of the contributing factors there is that there's not too many uh, programs across the country that are, um, you know, fire protection engineering based. Um, I know my school, obviously, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, they have their program. Uh, the University of Maryland has a, mm -hmm. has a great program as well. Um, and there are a few other schools. I don't want to misquote um, sure. what they are, but yeah, there's, there's really not that many programs across the country. So that, that definitely contributes to everyone kind of knowing each other. Yeah. Cause I mean, especially cause right now it seems like it's mostly retired, um, like fire chiefs and it's, it's not generally, you know, a younger population. Sure. Um, anyway, I digress. So, <laughs> so, you know, how, how was your, how did you end up at selective? What was your path there? Yeah. So after I had kind of finished a couple internships and realized that, um, insurance is where I wanted to be. Um, I started off at another large carrier doing uh, property loss prevention engineering, as I said, where the main focus was was property. Um, so I was going in and I didn't really care about, um, you know, their auto exposures. I wasn't asking them about their workers' comp exposures. It was just looking at the building, the contents, what type of fire or explosion we might experience, and how do we best mitigate uh, both the likelihood of that happening and the severity of it if it does happen. Um, so from there, 
uh, I was actually contacted by my my current manager um, to just say, hey, are you interested in, in potentially checking out another opportunity? And I've always, uh, you know, going back to checking that box um, on the common application, I've always been someone who doesn't shy away from an opportunity to to just learn about what's out there. You know, it's another one of those zero risk decisions. Um, so I've met up with him and, and talked uh, about the opportunity and thought, you know, um, I do want to stay with what I'm doing because I do like property loss prevention. Um, but, you know, maybe the reasons that I like that would be the same reasons that would allow me to enjoy doing other lines of business like auto and workers comp. Um, so I said, yeah, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot. And, um, that was back in, I believe August of 2019 is when I started at selective and I've been here ever since. So I, can you explain for our, our listeners, like what, what does a day look like for you? Like, what do you do every day? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so basically my role is kind of to be, um, the eyes and the ears for underwriters at our company um, and to provide like a technical expertise in certain lines of business um, to both our underwriters as well as our insureds. Um, so what that comes down to is you're kind of acting both as a consultant for our insureds to try to help them mitigate their losses um, and also to kind of collect more information for our underwriters they see a company on a piece of paper, but we realize that, you know, there's, there's only so much a piece of paper can tell you. Um, so a lot of it, it has to be done in the field, interacting with the client, making sure you understand, um, you know, what it is that their business does and what the potential risks are that are associated with that. So <clears throat> on any given day, um, there's kind of, there's generally three main things that I'm doing. Um, if you, if you think about a, a specific business that we insure, and I, I deal with, you know, hundreds of these companies, um, but let's just look at one. The process is I'm either preparing to go do a survey, mm -hmm. um, and a, a survey is just what we call a, a visit to our insureds. Um, so I'm either preparing for that survey by doing some preliminary research on the company, the lines of business that we insure, what the risks associated with that industry tend to be, um, and you know, conversing with our underwriters as far as do they have any specific needs. Um, from there, the second thing that I would be doing is actually performing the survey. So I'm out mm -hmm. at the insured site, walking through their building, asking them about what they do um, and gathering the information that I need to gather. And the third thing uh, would be the final, the final step is report writing. So I kind of take all of that information that I gathered during the survey preparation process, as well as the actual survey, and I consolidate it into um, just the pertinent information that our underwriting team needs. Um, and from there, I kind of, you know, send the report in. And if there are any recommendations that we made to the insured, that's something that I'll follow up with um, in a few months or a few weeks, depending on how, um, you know, how important the recommendation is. Yeah. Uh, and then I kind of move on to the next company. So is the process that you go through um, for current insureds or potential insureds or, or both? Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. Um, it's a good question. At the start of my time with Selective, um, it was mostly insureds. Uh, so people that we already insure. 
And the reason for that is because I was obviously new to these other lines of business, mm -hmm. such as auto and workers' <laughs> comp and general liability. So while I was learning these lines, I also had to kind of learn what Selective's appetite was. If you compare yeah. Selective to any other company, you know, there might be some similarities, but there's also many differences. There are types of risks that we look at and say, we're not going to ensure that it's just, it's not our specialty. We don't have, yeah. you know, we don't have the, uh, the internal processes to handle that. Whereas another company might say, that's our wheelhouse. We're going to ensure that all day long. Um, so over time, as I got more comfortable with what our appetite is, that's when kind of our management team said, okay, he's, he's getting a feel for this. Now we can start to send some prospects his way. And okay. um, sort of start to trust his opinion as to whether or not we we should be pursuing um, this specific business. So over time, it's gotten to be both. But I would say still, I would say still, the majority is um, is current insureds. So, you know, with with that, you're you're learning a lot of times about a whole new kind of business, a whole new type of product. Um, so it's like your gears are always moving. You're like, you're, you're never getting flat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's what I love about the job. You know, um, I was beginning to be a little bit nervous, um, when I was getting closer to graduation that I was going to end up in a job where I'm behind a computer all day, yeah. um, doing nothing but designing systems or something like that. And I, I realized that I'd need, uh, human interaction. You know, I need to be client facing, um, yeah. So that's, yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of the job. So it's, it's funny. I was in a similar situation. Um, after, after college, I, I opted to go try to get a PhD in neuroscience and pharmacology, like some oh, crazy nice. person. <laughs> and I realized very early on in that when I'm sitting in a lab being like, this is not the place for me. It was, it was very similar. Like I felt very closed off and secluded because I'm like I need to be in front of people like I am not good with just in front of like you know beakers and you know data and I it, like I knew I think after like six months I left the, the program because I knew it just wasn't it wasn't a great option for me I never thought I was gonna be a lawyer and then here I am <laughs> yeah so can I ask you this like what is it uh, about neuroscience that made you want to pursue that in the first place like what was your expectation versus um you know, what the reality was. <laughs> so my expectation, what I thought going in, I, I guess I went in with a clouded mind. I thought I, it would just be, whenever I took science classes in undergrad, it was still very um, interactive in the classes. And even the labs felt interactive. In when I went into the, my PhD program, it was just, it, the classroom was still interactive, but the lab was very solo. Like sometimes I'd be the only one in the lab just working by myself or everyone would have headphones on and not speaking to one another or they didn't speak English. You know? So it was, yeah, sure. It, and I just also found, you know, I don't think I thought it all the way through. I thought at first I was going to go to medical school. I pivoted and I just didn't think of how, I didn't really enjoy the process. Like I didn't enjoy doing this one thing over and over and over again to find out some tiny, tiny little result that's part of a much larger, um, you know, project. And yeah. that, and I, and I just I didn't have that passion. Like I remember at one point, like the, my mentor was like so excited about this tiny positive result, and I was like, Ugh. <laughs> like why do we care so much? You know. So yeah. Isn't it amazing though, like that there are, are people that just think so differently from us and are motivated by such different, I've always found that 
yeah. extremely interesting because it's so necessary. We need yeah. people that are, you know, really interested in that little niche. Um, yeah. And I'm so glad they're there. And yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's so, interesting. But, you know, I, I digress, but I, you know, I think it's very important to, ha- you know, to be, you know, look at yourself and be like how you did, like, the, you're so glad that's not the path you took. Cause you'd probably be unhappy right now. And then, you know, you found something that really works for, for yeah. you and your personality. Like not all engineers have to sit behind a computer, you know? Right. And so it's, and like for me, I have a very logical and analytical mind, but I also am pretty personable. So I, I don't also need to be behind a computer. Like there was another, I never thought being a lawyer was something I was able to do until I like later on in my career or like my job after, after I left that PhD program, I realized, oh, like you don't need to be a history major to be a lawyer, right? <laughs> which is what everyone, you know, in college was a history major or philosophy major or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So at any rate, so you also, what I'm hearing though, is like, so you, you know, you visit these insureds or potential insureds, but I'm more so thinking about insureds. You, like you keep seeing them over and over. So you're developing a, like a business personal relationship with them. Like you get a, you get comfortable with these individuals. So you can really talk to these business owners or about, you know, what you're seeing on, you know, when you're on your site visits. Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, dynamic, and it's different with every person that you interact sure. with. So it's it's definitely a challenge. But um, what it seems like to me, and I'm I'm relatively uh, new to this career. I graduated college in 2018, um, so I'm by no means an expert at what I do. I'm I'm still still very much in the development phase. But what it seems like to me is that uh, if I were to stay in this position at this company for 20 years, there would be repeat uh, visits mm-hmm. uh, and probably a lot of them. So I would be going out to insureds and saying, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in about three years, just kind of coming in to, to check in, see how everything's yeah. going, see if there's any questions you guys have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but right now, what I have to do is try to establish that consultant uh, team member type mm-hmm. of vibe um, early on. And the reason being is because I've found that um, when I make a recommendation to any business owner, depending on how I deliver that, it can be um, off-putting to them and it could kind of sure. seem like I'm telling them how to run their business yeah. when obviously that's that's not what I'm doing. I, I will never have the expertise that they have. You know, This is their livelihood and they know it better than I ever will. Um, what I bring to the table is a view from the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. So if we are talking about say an auto body shop, um, and we insure a thousand of those, we can look at the losses that we've had in the past and say, okay, this seems to be kind of a, a trend. Um, you know, having this type of uh, suppression system in this paint booth seems to not be working. So let's make the auto body shops that we go to, let's make them aware of that this is a potential problem. Um, so we kind of bring in that that insurance knowledge and claims knowledge to try to prevent this from happening to other people. Cause one thing that we're on the same page about uh, between me and the business owner is we, we don't want you to have a loss. Obviously that hurts our company monetarily and it, um, and it could also hurt your business. And some people would say, well, that's what insurance is for. Um, The problem with that is that you can't um, you can't just solve 
everyone's problems by throwing money at a loss that happens. No. Yes, it'll help the problem monetarily, but there's also yeah. um, reputation of the business, of the business owner that is at stake. And that can't really be um, indemnified. Yeah. But I'm sure you do get, like how you mentioned, you do get some pushback because I think, you know, say the, the owner of the, you know, the, the auto body shop, like they might've been running this business for maybe 30 years and maybe other, you know, either switching over to selective or they've had, you know, their policy with selective, but you guys are, you know, re- reviewing their policy for renewal. And then you, you find this issue and they might, you know, I imagine you get some pushback on, on some things. Like we've yeah. used this thing for 20 years. Why is it suddenly a problem now? <laughs> yeah, no, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, I, I think that's, that's kind of a, um, a pretty common theme that you'll find um, it just in, in general, not, not even talking necessarily about insurance, but we as humans kind of tend to have this, um, this mindset of, well, I've always done it this way and nothing's ever gone wrong. So <laughs> if it isn't, you know, if it isn't broken, why, why fix it? So I think the, the key to, to kind of being successful in a role like mine, specifically when it comes to giving recommendations is to approach things with empathy. Um, you have to, you have to kind of step into their shoes and realize that, you know, they've been doing this a certain way for however many years they've been in the business. So it can be off-putting for someone to come in and say that they should change something. Um, but yeah, I, I think in general, um, it, it is kind of just that mindset that needs to be broken down a little bit and you just need to do it in a way that um, you're approaching it as a member of their team rather yeah. than someone who's coming in and saying, this is wrong, you need to change this. Um, so yeah, a lot of it just just comes down to those soft skills and, and having a, a bit of em- empathy. So the, the big question is the what you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen, you've encountered this, that you have, you know, insurance who are like, I'm not going to change that. And I mean, it must, at that point, it's either affect, it's going to have to affect their premium. Their premium is going to be higher. If they're going to have a, something that you've assessed as a risk or a higher risk or I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, um, I knew this, this question was going to come up cause it, cause it comes up from our insureds a lot, yeah. um, which is, you know, I'll make a recommendation and they'll say, well, will my premium go down? And um, the reality is, and I have to re- reply with this is I, I actually don't, and this isn't, this isn't a it's lie. Your, I don't have control over the premium. Yeah, it's not your job. Um, <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it's interesting. And I, and I understand it from uh, the insured's perspective, because if I was them, I would probably be asking the same question. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that's, that's someone else's job. And um, it's also kind of necessary to kind of have like that separation of, of power yeah. um, because it kind of helps avoid conflicts of interest or coercion. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm the one physically there sitting in the office with uh, some of the owners of these businesses. And, you know, we understand not everything is black and white. We're not just going to necessarily say this has to be done and it's got to be done tomorrow. Um, generally speaking, accounts are, are, um, I guess, proactive enough to try to understand why the recommendation is being made. And if they feel like they can't do all of that within the next year, but maybe they can take steps in the right direction, that all gets factored in. Yeah, of course, because there's a financial aspect to this too. Like, you know, you're asking or are suggesting to, to a, a insured, like, Hey, like this thing, this thing, and this thing, and it's a total of however, whatever, $60,000. Like they might not be able to put out that 
that money to fix all those or change those three things in that year or that, you know, fiscal calendar, whatever it may be. So you might, yeah, they might need to spread it out. You're not trying to make your businesses go broke. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, that, that's that been an interesting change that I've experienced in my career as well, um, is going from uh, larger property and casualty carriers to selective who tends to do um, kind of smaller end business and middle market is there's not as much of the economies of scale that I was used to coming from the larger carriers. Um, where you could make a recommendation for a you know five hundred thousand dollar change, and usually they'd go okay yeah we'll have to take a look at next year's budget but I'm sure it can be done, um, you know now a recommendation like that for some of the insurance yeah. that we're seeing is is out of the question, so that's that's a constant um, conversation that we're having with our underwriting team and um, and you know my my managers other safety management yeah. specialists and everything, but you also must with these smaller businesses. Like, I'm sure you see a lot of like family run businesses or, you know, and you must feel like not a close knitness, but like, you know, you feel like, look, they've built this themselves. It's not a giant, giant corporation. And like, they really put their, you know, blood, sweat and tears into it. So you have to appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's another, um, you talk about things I like about this job. It's another uh, amazing aspect of it is you're, you're going in and you know, learning how things are done and to see some of these businesses that are, you know, third or fourth generation owned um, that started in, you know, 1911. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Um, Because like I said, I'm kind of a a top down processor. I I look at the big picture first. So I generally start the conversation um, just by asking them about the business. When did it start? Um, You know, how did it get to where it is today? And hearing some of those stories is, is amazing. Um, Even if I wasn't doing it as a career, I, I love having those conversations. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, my, my family has a a restaurant that's been around since 1928. So I understand that. Oh, nice. I understand the, the the background and then also the resistance to change. Yeah, (laughs) sure. I see that as well. Um, There's a lot of resistance to change how things were always done. Um, And I think that, that comes hand in hand with, I think, older established, you know, businesses. It's just yeah so what what kind of restaurant is this i want to hear about it (laughs) it's a it's a hot dog restaurant um and it's actually kind of in your neck of the woods it's in connecticut oh yeah we we talked about this um yes yes Yes. i totally forgot the name of it but it's yeah that's uh that's something i want to try i'm gonna i'm gonna put that down on my list to try it next time i uh blackie's hot dogs in cheshire connecticut for any everyone listening um just don't go on fridays that's one of the things that we don't change we're closed on fridays (laughs) Okay. All right. <laughs> and there's and there's also no French fries. Another thing that we don't change. There's no French. Okay. Fries. So yeah, hot dogs is the focus. That's their. Yes. All right. Great. Yes. I'm definitely gonna try it, and I'm gonna yeah. let you know how it is. I you better. And I'll give honest. I'll give honest <laughs> feedback too. So if it's bad, I'm gonna tell you. But and let me no know way. You, it's gonna be bad. Hot dogs are so good. Do me a courtesy. If you see any risks while you're out there, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. The sure. parking lot's looking a little wrangly. <laughs> I definitely will. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of that, like, you know, if you're able to share, are there any, you know, general red flags that, you know, you see when you, you go onto a property that, you know, either something you see a lot or something you're like, Oh, like, you know, is an issue that you you can talk about. I don't want you to give any specifics about any particular insurance. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a tough question to answer just because of the variety of, uh, 
businesses that we insure as well as um, what lines of business are we insuring. So there's so many different things to look at. So if I could give you kind of a general um, Mm -hmm. answer to that question, I would say uh, pride of ownership is, Mm -hmm. is generally, if there's a lack of pride of ownership um, and attitude of, of management, that's generally a red flag for me. Um, If you ask someone else in my position, they may have a totally different answer. Um, But I've, I've found that in general, when you walk into a business and it's pretty clear that they have a lot of pride in what they're doing, things are kept clean. um, And, you know, they're proactive, they have all their policies ready, um, sitting in front of them to talk about that usually means that um, they're going to be a pretty good risk. They're going to be willing to work with you. And uh, that's, that's just what I've noticed. However, you can't just see the the pride of ownership (laughs) and just say, this is a great risk, lower their premiums, like do whatever you can. This is amazing. You have to kind of pierce the veil and and go a little bit deeper and, uh, you know, try to figure out what's, what's really going on because they could be as proactive as they want. There may, you don't know what you don't know. So, and I, I tend to, I think I would agree with that though, too, because, you know, if you go to a place and you like, let's just take the auto body shop, like as, as an example, like generally speaking, they're a little grummy around the edges, but if you're going to, it's like a clean as like you would cleaner than you would expect like an auto body shop to be. You see people there, there, you see the safety measures in, in order. No one's walking under cars or whatever it might be like that has to, that, that first impression has to speak a lot to you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a management culture that, that really tends to start at the top of these organizations. If there's an owner who, who really cares about his business, cares about his employees, um, you know, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be an operation that generally speaking is, is pretty well run. So, and I don't know if this is something you can speak to as well, it kind of goes hand in hand with that, but, you know, is there any, you know, advice that you would give to a business over owner as how to, you know, do their best to, to mitigate the risk before, before you come, you know, come to their property and, you know, give an assessment of, you know, what looks good, what doesn't look good. Yeah, sure. Um, I think you, you almost kind of answered the, the, the question in the question, which is um, before I come, you know, what can be done? Um, so generally speaking, uh, take pride in your operation, which is obvious to anyone. That's, that's kind of good advice, um, no matter if you're a business owner or you're just you know, going to school, take pride in what you're doing. Um, but I would say if there could be more specific advice, it would be to um, seek outside input. Mm-hmm. You know, this might be Um, We've seen, you know, owners of companies, they'll hire uh, third party safety companies um, to come in and just give, you know, give their um, opinion as to what can be done um, to improve the safety. They could call OSHA and say, hey, we we want you to come do an inspection. We want you to tell us if anything's wrong. Um, Listen to new hires. If you hire somebody from the same industry. Um, and they're coming into your organization as a new hire, ask them, you know, do you see anything that we're doing that you think could be improved? And that might be safety related, that might be business related, but I think being open-minded to, to change is difficult to do, but, mm-hmm. but necessary. And you don't always have to take the advice, you know, some of the advice might, might end up being wrong, but to be open to it, I think is uh, your best bet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that's a, a good theme is just to be open to change. And I, I'm sure that is probably difficult for a lot of 
business owners, especially like the, the ones that we've, we've been talking a lot about is that have been around since 1908. And they, again, like how we mentioned earlier, they've always done it this way. It might be hard to embrace, you know, a, a change or something they didn't even realize would be, um, you know, a, a risk. Now, yeah. do you, do you ever have to go, or do you ever do, you know, a site visit, you know, after, um, a claim has come in to assess something that, or, or is that a different department? Um, so it is generally a different department, but it's not to say that, um, that we don't attend those things. I, so I have done that. Um, and it is always interesting to see the things that can go wrong. Um, another strange aspect of my job is that most accounts that I go and visit, whether I go there or not, most accounts will not have a serious loss. Um, you know, if you give, look at any 10 or even 20 year period, most of those accounts are not going to have a very severe loss. So there's been times in my career where I've kind of started to question, like, is, is what I'm doing really making an impact? Um, and what I've learned just based on seeing some of the losses that have happened, um, whether it be, you know, for our company or another company, or just in general, you see stories on the news is that if, if I can even prevent one Mm -hmm. significant loss, um, that's a win. The tough part is you don't know if you've prevented that loss. So it's kind of, and I learned this kind of early. Exactly. I I learned it kind of early in in fire protection engineering is uh, fire protection engineering majors and and people that are actually, you know, professional fire protection engineers, they are doing a great job when nobody is talking about them. Yeah. You know, it's only when there's a, like the Grenfell uh, tower fire in, in England, um, Mm -hmm. You know, when that happens, now everyone's looking at, whoa, you know, who designed this building? Why were there not more exits? What, what was the sprinkler system yeah. like? Um, that's when, you know, they come under fire, no pun intended, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, though. it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty good <laughs> credit for that. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's kind of the interesting part of the job, but I find a lot of uh, solace and, and pride uh, in the fact that I'm, you know, doing things to try to help these businesses uh, prevent that severe loss that could really cause a lot of uh, financial and and reputational damage. Um, So, well, and it's, that's such a good point too, that, you know, you don't have a measure, a a true measure to be like, it it, it is what I'm doing successful, but if you're not, or less often seeing major losses after, you know, you or you know, your counterparts have, you know, assessed a business something has to be working. Yeah, definitely. So of course my follow-up question is, have you had, or can you recall a situation you've had, you've made a recommendation and you've had them say, "Mm, you know, we can't do that right now. We don't want to do that right now. We don't have the money to do that right now. And then you see a loss result out of a recommendation that you've made. Of course, I don't want you to talk about any particular insurance or anything, but have you seen that scenario arise? Um, yeah, I can, I, nothing specific is is coming to mind. Um, okay. And the, the tough part about that is um, I might make a recommendation and they might not comply with it. And I wouldn't get notified if they sure. had kind of a smaller loss. I would probably get notified if, you know, their whole building burnt down. Um, but yeah, so I can't think of anything specific. Um, that's not to say that it hasn't happened. It's just not... Um, 
it's not what I'm paying attention to on a daily basis. I'm preparing for my my next survey or you know going out to perform these surveys. So it's that's just not um, something I'm commonly looking at. Now, other than you know what, what we had touched on, Nick, you know taking you know being proud of your business, taking ownership of your business. Are there any other you know steps that a business can take to mitigate you know their overall risk, like any other risk factors that they can do themselves um, to help to help prevent future losses, potential future losses? Yeah. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's plenty of online uh, resources, depending on what type of specific risk you're, you're looking to um, mitigate. Um, even just, you know, going onto Google and typing in, um, you know, emergency management plans, if you want to know about how to, yeah. Um, you know, get your, get your building back up and running. If there was ever, you know, a wide power outage, uh, you know, are there companies that rent generators that I could use temporarily to keep things running? Um, so depending on how specific the risk is that you're looking to, to mitigate, you can search online. Another thing I would say, um, just being an employee of selective and some other insurance companies in the past is reach out to your insurance company and see if there's anything they can do to help. There's a lot of free services that we offer. Um, you know, we have a telematics device, um, that we offer to our insureds for free. Um, so telematics, that's the, um, the technology that can go into your car and allow, um, management to sort of see where the vehicles are. Are they speeding? Are the drivers using their cell phones while they're driving? Um, that type of stuff. And a lot of them, like I said, will be free. So Mm -hmm. I would say reach out to your insurance carrier because, um, they likely have, have plenty of things that they can help you with at no cost to you. Uh, and that's such a good point. I have one of those things in my car, but it always makes me a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say, how do you, how do you like it? Because I, we have it in our cars as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, it can be a little, little bit unnerving at times. Well, uh, fortunately, I, I don't drive very often anymore, so you know, I'm limit my, my potential exposure to me doing poor, you know, making poor decisions is low. <laughs> because yeah. my car's mostly in my driveway. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's a cool technology though cuz I've I've found that since since I installed it um it's not even so much that I know um that it's it's being tracked it's kind of just the awareness that it's there yeah. that kind of makes me say okay don't be as risky as you may have yeah. in the past you know don't don't take that phone call while you're driving just yeah. pull over in a couple minutes and call them back. Yeah. So maybe you don't yeah. need to do a quick U-turn here. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, and I, I feel like I know the answer, but um, how has COVID affected, you know, your ability to do your job? Yeah, COVID definitely um, changed things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that they were changes that were already coming. It's just COVID accelerated them. Mm-hmm. So typically uh, before COVID, I would say 95% of the surveys that I would do were in person. Mm-hmm. I would go out, ask them questions, even if you know their building was so small that it wasn't really a concern to us and we could have gotten most of the information over the phone. There's, there's a big, there's a lot to be said for putting a face to the name, oh, going out and actually sitting down physically with, with the insured. But when COVID struck, I think it was literally on St. Patrick's Day in 2020, um, that's when I got a call from my manager saying, stop going out on the road. We're, we're in lockdown. 
Um, so it was, it was very uh, doomsday-ish. Yes. It was a strange <laughs> feeling to hear that because I just never expected to hear it. But now all of a sudden we were thrust into this world that we can no longer physically visit our insureds. And that lasted for five months, I want to say. So immediately um, our internal teams kind of started uh, looking at some of the te- technologies that could be used, WebEx, Zoom, Microsoft Teams. It's still the majority of the time that we're going out in the field, but there's plenty of accounts that we say, you know what, they're they're located three hours away. I could get on a video call with them and we've found that we can still pretty effectively do our jobs. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of us have discovered, you know, things that, again, like uh, embracing, we don't have to do it because this is the way it's always been done. You know, we're, we're, we're very similar to that, that company that's been around since 1900, that we're, it's hard for us to embrace change until we're forced to embrace it. I mean, I felt like this has happened with the court systems, you know, just because there's, we've always had these, you know, conferences in person doesn't mean we need to do these 10 minute conferences in person. It's a giant waste of everyone's time. So the pivot, um, is certainly important, but I'm sure for you, you know, the ability to be able to go physically back into your insurance buildings is helpful to absolutely get a full assessment of what's going on. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's typically the accounts that are pretty auto heavy or, um, workers comp heavy yeah. that we can more effectively do virtual surveys, uh, when it comes to a property heavy account, you know, we tried the whole, you know, send us pictures of your sprinkler risers, send us your sprinkler plans, um, send us a couple, couple pictures of, you know, this exposure and that exposure. And th- there's only so much you can get. Um, you know, they could be behind you. There could be 10 employees that are smoking cigarettes next to flammable liquids. Um, you know, it's a bit of an extreme example, but it, it gets the point across is when it comes to property, you do kind of have to physically be there to, to really get a good, a good sense of what's going on. Particularly if it's, I can imagine it's much more difficult if it's a, a potential new insured because you you need to you've never been there. If it's a, a renewal, I mean you might already have schematics and you might already have that information. So maybe an in person you know visit isn't absolutely necessary. But at yeah. the insured, I imagine like you don't even know what's going on. Yeah, there's plenty of times where um, you know during that five month period where there were. Um, prospective insureds and we had to do a lot of internet research uh, you know using Google Earth and using all these different technologies to, to try to understand what we could about the building and there were underwriters on the calls and safety management specialists on the calls um, all just kind of collaborating to try to figure out um, what the best move is and it's it's difficult but I think uh, you know companies and, and people in general are pretty pretty adaptive and we've all done some some pretty amazing things, um, you know, not, not just our industry, certainly plenty of other industries that uh, really held the world together during yeah. a, a crazy time. So um, it's impressive to see happen. Yes. And now I think hopefully seeing the light at the end of this long tunnel, I hope. Yep. knock on wood, let's hope. Yeah, really. Um, so, you know, we're almost out of time and I, I wanted to, to pivot a little bit back to, to you. Um, because you've talked a lot about, you know, your, your passions with, with, you know, your professional life, but, you know, all of us have a life outside of, outside of work. So, you know, what sort of hobbies or interests do you have, you know, when you're not, you know, 
being the big bad risk assessor. <laughs> oh man, I would never describe myself as a big bad risk assessor. I hope nobody does. Um, <laughs> I had to but, use it though. I've been waiting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm always, um, you know, I'm just off a final note on that is I, I always um, am really happy when I walk out of a survey and somebody says something along the lines of, oh, that wasn't nearly as bad as I expected. Um, you know, that I take a lot of pride in that because um, it is it is a challenge sometimes to have, I mean, who wants to talk to the insurance inspector? Nobody yeah. does. And I understand that coming in. So I, I think I'm getting better. I still have work to do, but I think I'm getting better at um, positioning myself as a team member of theirs rather than an inspector. That's um, how I sometimes feel when I walk out of the accountant. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as far as other interests and, and hobbies, um, I would say interests, kind of a lot of, a lot of things. And if you ask me six months from now, they might change, but um, world history, I've, I've become more interested in, in the past, you know, four or five years, um, as well as economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and personal finance and things like that. There's kind of some of these topics that I think are not only interesting, but also really important to learn about because they can kind of shape, uh, I don't know if political is the, is the right word, but just kind of your philosophical beliefs on how the world is running compared to how it should be running. Um, and that could go to how the U.S. is running, how your state is running, how your local community is running. There's a lot of different things to learn from human history, sure. um, as well as just economics and, uh, you know, what we can do to improve the lives of ourselves and those around us. Um, and then hobbies, I would say the biggest one that I've been into recently uh, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh. I started doing that a couple of years ago, um, mainly mainly stemming from uh, having two older brothers that, you know, at different times in our lives, they were, they were able to beat up on me. So I'm trying to position myself to be able to beat up on them a little bit. Um, But it's, it's a really fun sport. It's, it's like a physical puzzle to solve. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoy doing that. And were you able to keep that up when everything, like, did you just do it at home when everything was closed down or did you just take a a hiatus? (laughs) Yeah. So I took a, I took a hiatus. Um, for I think 14 months, um, which was tough because it was about four or five months after I started and I was really oh. catching the bug and starting to yeah. starting to catch on and not just getting destroyed by, by everyone at my gym. Um, but thankfully, uh, one of my older brothers, he wrestled in high school um, and he was, he was living at home with me at the time. Um, so I bought a couple of uh, mats from Amazon and they showed up and I would literally set them up in my backyard and me and him would just kind of go at it. So <laughs> it, it was, it was me and him. Um, so there, there wasn't uh, too much of a variety of people I got to yeah. face, but, but it was, it was definitely better than nothing. Um, yeah. So yeah. I love that. So, you know, if you were to go back to yourself you know, Riley in, in high school and you're applying to colleges and, you know, choosing your, your, de- you know, your degree, would you follow the same path or would you do anything differently? Um, you know, I, I think I would follow the same path. Um, there, there wasn't really like, especially in high school, I don't really think I had much of a choice in terms of what paths I was going to go to. I, I enjoyed math and I was good at it. 
Um, so I look at the other potential routes and it's like, yeah, could I have potentially done something maybe? Um, but I, I think in general, it, it would be the same, the same type of path. Now, what I would say to myself is uh, pay more attention in history because um, I'm only now realizing how important that stuff is. When I was in middle school and high school, I would be in history classes and English classes and and I would just be thinking to myself, I'm never going to use this. I'm going to, I'm never going to use this. It's not applicable. I'm going to use my math and I, that stuff will be applicable to the real world, but none of this is going to be applicable and come to find out. I really wish that I paid more attention in those classes because so much of it, so much of where our future as a civilization could go mm-hmm. is based on so much stuff that has already happened in history. Um, so I guess I just, kind of as a general education thing, I would tell myself to pay more attention um, in those classes. But in general, I think I would have ended up on the same path. I could probably give myself that same advice too. Those classes were always the most painful for me. I I took it as like a, just write everything down and then memorize it. (laughs) Right. And had I taken a different approach, I think the people who are really good and history and philosophy and those types of classes like didn't just put it all down and memorize it they like listened and like thought about it whereas I was more like I need to know all the dates I need to know. <laughs> I had to memorize everything oh I was the exact same way yeah, yeah. You, you you have like a false sense of of why you're learning this stuff you kind of just think okay well you just have to kind of pay respect to what's happened in the past um so we're gonna learn history but it's it's actually a lot more than that um so yeah, I just wish I paid a little bit more attention in those areas. Yeah. Although I have advice for the, the people who are very good at, you know, history. I'm like, well, pay more attention to math because it's really fun. <laughs> I, I agree. That's, that's how I've always thought. Why are you, why are you guys not, you know, joining more math classes or computer science? There's a lot of fun puzzles to solve, but again, Actually, it's you know, all not puzzles. everyone, yeah, not everyone <laughs> thinks that way. And when we need the people that think in other ways, um, so yeah, it's it's funny when I talk to like other other lawyers about taking um, the LSAT because the the logic portion of it it's it's all math games and they're like oh lo- that logic section was worse I'm like that was the best section it was just a whole section of games like that we just yeah need so to figure out <laughs> it, yeah it's really it's really funny that you mentioned that because um, now that I'm thinking about your last question like you know would would you change career paths uh, potentially I have always had an interest in law um, and I think part of that is because I grew up in a family, especially on my, on my dad's side, that is, um, you know, it's, we have a lawyer, we have doctors, um, we have engineers and the conversations that I experienced at holiday parties and things like that were always so logic based. And I would watch people go at it. And it was so fun to me, um, to just watch some very smart people talk about very important things. Uh, so I got kind of, I think good at arguing, um, and I've even had a lot of my friends say, Riley, you really should be a judge because you're really good at <laughs> viewing, you know, 10 different arguments and looking at them objectively and kind of deciding which one makes the most sense. Um, so I, I kind of I would laugh that off for for years. But uh, I think about two years ago, I just went online and I just Googled LSAT and I wanted to take a practice exam. Um, and that's the exact same impression that I got from that exam is this is fun. Yeah. So I took a few LSAT practice exams and I was like, this, this really is just kind of like solving some puzzles. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's the right reason to be interested in law, but I, I have always had that interest in the back of my mind. Yeah. So if I ever decide to make a career change, um, 
I'll, I'll count on you for guidance. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, you're well, you, you're in a great space, you know, to, if I, I'm not encouraging you to, to change your career path, but your background <laughs> would fit very well into like a product liability defense um, type or, or even on a, on a plaintiff side, but like the, your knowledge of engineering and products and risk, um, you would be, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of others. So mm, yeah, that, that's interesting. Board, you know? No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I'll be uh, in the insurance industry for the, for the near future, certainly. But, um, but yeah, no, like I said, it's, it's always interesting to have these conversations and that's, um, that's one of the biggest things I love about this job is the amount that you learn about other industries. It allows you to connect with more people um, because, you know, I don't know what your day-to-day looks like, but there is some common ground and some overlap in the topics that you discuss. So it's, it's always cool to be able to, to meet people and, and have something to talk about and, and learn from. Absolutely. And, you know, and that, that's one thing I, like I, I, mention or it comes up a lot is, you know, and I think I already mentioned here with like with insurance and in the legal world, like every day is so different because, you know, depending on what case you get in, you have to learn about something totally new, you know, depending on what insured you have, you have to learn about a business and a product that's totally new. And you, it like you, you, and now at the, you know, your family gatherings, you have so much more things to bring into those debates. Cause you know, all like, all these little random specifics about products and businesses and and now you have all the history background too because you you know <laughs> you've, you're you're now a history buff too so you oh know my god well <laughs> yeah no I, I i hear what you're saying i i hope to someday be a history buff but it there's just it's it's crazy the more you learn the more you realize that you know so little um so it just it points you in another direction it's like wow they mentioned this i've never even heard of that i'm gonna go do a deep dive into that yeah. so yeah it seems like a never-ending cycle but um yeah, there's pl- plenty to learn always. Uh, so I'm glad yes. to be in a career that allows me to to sort of um, pursue a lot of different interests. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for coming on and and sharing, you know, everything that you 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 could about you know what your day looks like and what you're looking for um, in a you know risk mit- mitigation lens. You know, I, I like as I said to you before you came on the podcast, I love the idea of having you come on just because I on my end deal with like risk after the fact and, you know, and ha- how to deal with it there and to have you on the front end, you know, walking in on it, doing a site visit thing. Here's a problem here. There's a problem here. Or, or this looks great. I mean, I, it, it's like full circle for me. So I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. This is, this was a fun, fun conversation. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll continue to, to stay in touch and I'll definitely let you know how, how Blackie's hot dogs are. Um, and if I, if I ever become more interested in law, I'll definitely be reaching out, but yeah, I, I appreciate Absolutely. the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And for our, our listeners, you know, if you like what you hear always, uh, you can subscribe to the defense of arrest on Apple podcasts, and you can now find us on YouTube, um, at the defense of arrest.